From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. It took a while after the pandemic hit, but teacher churn hit an all-time high in Colorado. It's not good for students when they lose teachers. They lose a trusted adult. A school has to spend time finding a new teacher who might be newer, less experienced, less effective. The school loses institutional knowledge. Colleagues lose colleagues. And so it just has this destabilizing effect on schools. Then a Colorado family creates a liqueur made from a flower that numbs your mouth. My dad was the first one to kind of put the flowers into alcohol. Like the first one that you know of, like in the world? As far as we knew at the time. We'll taste Tingala, a startup in a state better known for beer and substances that numb in a different way. I donated my car to Colorado Public Radio. That was the one thing that I could do to be helpful. Why not give something back to the community? It was easy. I would do it again. Car donations are an important part of CPR's operating budget. If you have a vehicle you're ready to part with, please consider donating it to Colorado Public Radio. You'll need to supply your title, but you won't even need to leave your home. And then just like that, your car turns into the news you rely on and the music you love. Get started now at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. The thing about a global pandemic is it takes a while to truly understand its effects. It is getting clearer how teachers were affected, which Matt Barnum is going to illuminate for us, in a conversation not just about problems but solutions as well. Barnum is national reporter for Chalkbeat, and just so happens to have taught middle school in Colorado in a former life. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Colorado is among the states you single out as having lost a record number of teachers associated with the pandemic. Help us understand that. Yeah. So in the state of Colorado, teacher turnover, which really meant the share of teachers who left a given district in in a year. And so maybe they switched to another district. Some of them left teaching. But before the pandemic, that was hovering around 15, 16, 17 percent. And then in the first year after the pandemic hit the summer of 2020, it didn't change that much. It actually went down a little bit. And then in the second year, it ticked up a little bit more. And then in the third year in Colorado, like a lot of other states, it hit an all-time high. And so it went to about 19%, according to state data. And so that was actually last summer that, you know, going into this most recent school year, about 19% of Colorado teachers left the classroom or switched districts or switched careers. And again, that was an all-time high. Aha. Uh-huh. And so it's not quite right to say that they were entirely lost because some of them went to other districts. But what is the effect of that kind of uh, mobility or instability on students? Yeah, or churn, you might say. Yeah. It's not positive on that. You know, there can be cases where someone realizes teaching isn't the best fit for them or they switch to a district or school that is a better fit. But on that, researchers have found it's not good for students when they lose teachers. They lose a trusted adult. A school has to spend time finding a new teacher who might be newer, who often is newer or less experienced, less effective. The school loses institutional knowledge. Colleagues lose colleagues. And so it just has this destabilizing effect on schools at a time where they may need more stability. 
Is it fair to say the 19% churn figure is related to a teacher shortage, which we know, by the way, existed before the pandemic, right? The phrase teacher shortage is a famously slippery phrase. Uh-huh. And you, you have written about this, by the way. In, yeah. in my world, it's famous, um, least slippery, because when we think of a shortage in a, of a product, we think, well, there just are literally no products available, mm. right? We, we can't buy X that we're trying to buy. It's not usually like that for teachers. I mean, schools can usually fill the vast majority of their classrooms with a teacher. Now, oftentimes there'll be a couple percent of classrooms that are vacant that they have to fill with a long-term sub. But they do have a body in there who is a credentialed teacher. The question then is whether the person is effective or you know qualified to be a teacher. Mm-hmm. And so it's certainly a concerning sign that Colorado and other states are seeing more teachers leave. The question is, can they fill them and replace the teachers who left with equally good, equally qualified teachers? And can they replace all of them? Aha. And so the discussion should not just be purely numbers, but also about quality. Tell us about Bailey Fern. So she was a teacher in Jefferson County and in Denver, and she decided to leave teaching after uh, five years. For her, it wasn't one thing, but it was a lot of things. It was just a really stressful job. She recounted to me that the school had active shooter drills, which were traumatizing to her quite understandably, and she had to put on keep a brave face for her students but that was really scary um, again completely understandably she also recounted an incident where a student really had like a mental health breakdown in the middle of class and she had dozens of other students to deal with and the child was just crying and that was just a real struggle for her and she decided you know what i i can't do this anymore and she left the classroom How much of that do you think was about the pandemic, which we know exacerbated mental health issues for, well, for everyone, but young people, of course, as well? I think it's it's obviously hard to say for her in particular or for her student in particular, but we've heard this repeatedly. And we certainly see in the numbers this big uptick in, in turnover. And it certainly seems to be playing a role, the pandemic and its fallout. But how much or what part of it precisely, I think, is hard to say. Mm-hmm. It is fascinating to me, Matt, that it took a while, if the pandemic was a major influence, it seems to have taken a while. As you say, it wasn't year one. It wasn't really all that noticeable in year two. It's by year three that you see a trend. Right. I'm not quite sure what's going on. I do think part of it definitely had to do with the economy. So in the summer of 2020, the first sort of pandemic year where teachers might leave or the time that they might leave, the economy, recall, no one was hiring. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the economy was at a standstill. So if you were a teacher unhappy, you didn't have many other options. But as the economy has picked back up, teachers had had more options. So I think that's part of it. I also th- think there may be this sort of pent up stress, pent up frustration, where some teachers were able to stick it out for a couple years and then said after year three, you know what, I'm done. And let's not make this all doom and gloom. If teachers leave one classroom for a different one that's a better fit and better pay, I mean, that's certainly a success in their world. Yeah. I mean, it's from an individual's perspective, if they're leaving one career for a better career or a different a career that's a better fit for them. That's certainly positive. Now, what's interesting is that some teachers leave 
and they're they're not better paid at least at first you know mm -hmm. oftentimes they're starting a a new career or, or new vocation and that was the the situation with Bailey Fern who I who I interviewed that she wasn't getting a pay raise now in the long term she probably will be paid more because teachers are paid less than um, other college educated workers so if you're looking at teaching as a in in the medium term for how much you're going to get paid it, it it may not be the best fit if that's your your top concern why did you leave teaching? So, you know, I, this was uh, over a decade ago and in a different life, as you mentioned, but um, there, there were a number of reasons. Like many of the teachers who I spoke to, my first year in the classroom, I was given a key and I think the teacher's edition of the textbook, and that was about it. So that was a real struggle my first year. It, it was also a job where, unlike a lot of jobs that I've had and jobs that um, peers have had where you're really always on, you know, even like going to the bathroom in the middle of the workday, you know, if it wasn't during your lunch break or during your planning period, you had to go get another duck out really quick to get another teacher from the, the room nearby. And so it was a, it was a really stressful, challenging career. And for me, I decided to pursue other options. It's fascinating to me that you didn't want to always be on and then you go to journalism. Um, but th this to me is a testament of what it is to be an educator. Yeah. Well, for, <laughs> for journalism, you, you have time between interviews, right? Mm. And you're, you're also not dealing with uh, dozens of uh, middle school students. So nope. um, it, <laughs> in a lot of ways, it, it, it is a less stressful profession. You know, there are two groups, I suppose, to talk about, those who are already teachers. And, and so I guess the question of retention, churn, but also those who might become teachers, so the pipeline. What do we know about the pipeline um, post-pandemic? Yeah, I think you're exactly right to, to think about these two different groups, um, the teachers or prospective teachers or people we might want to be teachers. And we know the pipeline of prospective teachers is shrinking. Fewer and fewer people say they want to be teachers. High school students or college students say they're interested in becoming teachers. Actually, fewer parents say they want their kids to become teachers. Oh. And then fewer people are training to become teachers and are getting licenses to become teachers. And that actually predated the, the pandemic. That decline started in around 2008. There are different theories that we could talk about for why, but there isn't a sort of a 100% clear answer of why there's been a decline that predated the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, reflecting back on that Colorado teacher you profiled, Bailey Fern, especially in Colorado with its history of school attacks, I mean, that's got to be mm -hmm. one, one element. It, it, it's certainly possible. And, you know, to the extent that this is salient in people's minds that they're facing these like horrific risks by entering teaching, entering the classroom, that could certainly deter people. Now, we know that as a statistical matter, schools are actually very safe for students and teachers, mm -hmm. but there are these horrific incidents that understandably draw attention and people may not want to even be remotely close to that. Matt Barnum joins us, national reporter for Chalkbeat, the education news site. We're talking about the pandemic's effects on teachers, particularly in Colorado. In a follow-up piece, Matt, you address solutions. The first one you write about, unsurprisingly, is raising pay. But it's not across the board. It's like for a specific group. So who 
and why? Right. I, I think that when we think about shortages in any area, we should think about raising prices. If you want more of something, you should pay more for it. An, an economist would advise us. So if we want more teachers or if we want better teachers, we should consider paying teachers more. And there's plenty of theory and evidence to suggest that that will attract more people into the profession and to stay in the profession. Um, in my piece, I particularly suggested raising teacher pay early in teachers' careers and it, through the middle of their careers. Now, that's not to suggest that later career pay is unimportant, but we also know that there are certain benefits and especially retirement benefits that are already backloaded for teachers. So later career is we're, we're maybe a little less concerned about how teachers are paid. But early career, early and mid-career, we know that teachers are paid less than other college-educated workers. We also know early career is when teachers are most likely to leave the classroom. And we know that when people are thinking about entering a profession, they look at the most salient salary, which is going to be their starting salary. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I focused on suggesting raising early and mid-career teacher pay. Because obviously the base pay is what your raises are based on. And as you say, the churn comes early. Fascinated by this idea, apprenticeships, something I associate with careers, Matt, other than teaching. Right. Well, you know, as the experience of Bailey and myself as a teacher showed, when you start teaching, you are in your very first year, you are doing essentially the same job as your colleague who's been doing it for 20 years right across the hall. And that's always struck me as very odd. Like, you, shouldn't different people with different, like, experience potentially be doing different jobs? And in many other professions, that that is the case. Isn't that what student teaching is, Matt? Student teaching, you have a great deal of support. You are not the only adult in the classroom. Mm -hmm. And so you're still going from a great deal of support to very little support in your first year of the classroom. So the apprenticeship might be the bridge um, between student teaching and in a full regular classroom. And then with the increasing number of teachers who are alternatively certified, there are some teachers who aren't even getting that student teaching experience. The diversity of the teacher corps is key, you're right. How so? Well, first, we know that the vast majority of teachers are white, and we know that an increasing number of students in the country as a whole, I believe close to a majority of students are students of color, black, Hispanic, or other racial minority group. And so there's a disconnect between the racial demographics of teachers and students. Now, that's not necessarily bad, but there is evidence that students of color benefit from having teachers of color, um, and particularly black teachers, which there are relatively few black teachers in, in the American teaching workforce. So there's evidence students of color benefit from having teachers of color. So a lot of people have called for trying to make intentional efforts to diversify the teaching profession. Before we go, what's Colorado doing right? I understand that they're trying residency programs. And so there is some evidence that residency programs, for instance, can increase teacher retention and increase teacher diversity. They're often, depending on how they're designed, they're often pretty expensive, which makes it hard to get a huge number of your teachers through that approach. And so I'll be interested to see um, how effective it is through Colorado in, in Colorado and how many teachers go through that sort of program. Um, I also understand that Colorado is trying to help pay for prospective teachers' education, and that might also have an effect 
on who enters into teaching if they see that their education is paid for. I'll be interested to try to compare that to other uses of the money, such as just raising um, starting teacher pay. And mm. different states are doing different things. And so we're going to have to look at the data to see what is more or less effective. Did your parents want you to be a teacher, Matt? You know, they did. I don't think they had a firm take on that. Uh -huh. I don't think it was a job that they deterred me from, yeah. but it was, certainly wasn't a job that they encouraged me to enter either. Well, thanks for your reporting. I'm grateful for it. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I enjoyed the conversation. Matt Barnum is national reporter for Chalkbeat, the education news outlet. We talked about churn in the teacher corps after the pandemic. The state this week launched Career Advance Colorado, which offers a free community college education to students in a range of fields, construction, firefighting, law enforcement, and yes, teaching. Read a story about it from our own education reporter, Jenny Brundine, at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Hey, it's Vic Vela from CPR's podcast, Back From Broken, returning for season four. More stories about the highest highs. I've had this incredible wave of love. The darkest moments. I ran up to mom and I said, daddy wants me to sniff this yellow powder on my nose. And what it takes to make a comeback. You just have to be like, I need to put myself first. Back From Broken. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Supported in part by CU Anschutz. Natural gas fuels climate change. But what if, instead of piping only it to stoves and furnaces, you mixed in a clean burning fuel like hydrogen? Excel Energy wants to try it, and as CPR's Sam Brash reports, Colorado's largest energy utility plans to start with one neighborhood. That neighborhood is Box Elder Creek Ranch. It's a subdivision near Hudson, Colorado, about 30 miles northeast of Denver. I went to check it out on a recent afternoon. Uh, not a lot of trees, big lots, big houses, lots of trucks, no sidewalks. Like most Coloradans, people here rely on conventional methane or natural gas to cook and stay warm. Of course, burning that gas warms the climate. Hydrogen is different. Using it doesn't produce any carbon pollution. By mixing hydrogen into the gas supply, Excel Energy wants to test a new idea to clean up its gas network. But turns out, that is news to most residents. Have you guys heard anything about that? No, we have not. No, we haven't heard nothing. I haven't anyway. I haven't heard anything about this at all. No flyers, no mailers, no nothing. That last voice is Ashley Livesey. She wasn't aware of the project, but knew hydrogen might be explosive. And that left her feeling... A little nervous. I'm not sh I don't know much about it, so I need to research more of it. But it doesn't really sound like it's a good thing. Now, Excel Energy has held meetings with the local HOA and sent mailers about the project, but most residents I spoke to were in a similar spot. They were in the dark, but uncomfortable with their new role as guinea pigs. And here's the thing. Box Elder Creek Ranch would only be Colorado's first hydrogen-fueled neighborhood. Excel is now studying how to make it work for millions of gas customers. That's no cause for concern, says Jeff Ling, an Excel vice president for sustainability. We're never going to put customer safety at risk for any project. And this demonstration project is no, is no exception. Ling says the demonstration project is all about safety. The company will monitor for leaks and any issues with appliances. And it won't add a bunch of hydrogen all at once. 
We'll start with 2% blending, move to 5%, up to 10%. We won't go above 10%. That's 10% hydrogen, 90% conventional natural gas. We know that that's a safe limit uh, for appliances, for customers, for our employees. You know, there's actually 39 different blending projects, demonstration projects underway in some fashion right now across the country. So this is just one of them. Colorado also sees promise in the idea. It wants the federal government to fund a hydrogen production hub in the Rocky Mountain West, and their application lists home heating as one potential future use. But climate and safety groups say that is a false climate solution. It's inefficient, it's expensive, it's polluting, and it's dangerous. Andy Krasner is with Physicians for Social Responsibility, a climate advocacy group. She says it's already clear hydrogen doesn't belong in homes. One reason is a study California commissioned last year. It looks at hydrogen blends higher than 5%. And they found that would require modifications to appliances such as stoves and water heaters to avoid both leaks and equipment malfunction. Then there's the basic claim that this would cut emissions. Krasner says that's tough when most hydrogen, at least right now, is made from natural gas. A process that itself releases carbon. Put it all together, Krasner says a better way to cut emissions is just to swap in electric stoves and heating systems and then power them with wind and solar. Green hydrogen will play a very important role in our low-carbon future, but it's going to be in industrial settings. A coalition of climate groups is now looking for ways to stop the demonstration project. And this brings us back to Ashley Livesey's front door. It sounds like it's more dangerous for the homeowner. (laughs) As we chat, her 10-year-old son Dawson pops in. Do you have any questions about this? Is it, could you say no to it? Could the neighborhood say no? It's a basic question, and the answer is kind of. Excel Energy still needs construction permits from Adams County. That should, at least, give residents the chance to weigh in. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News. Cocktails provide any number of sensations. Flavor, scent, tipsiness. Today, though, the story of a Colorado spirit that does something entirely different. This story involves the rainforest, and a family business. And CPR's Dan Boyce is going to share it with us. Hi, Dan. Hello, Ryan. This liqueur is called Tingala. And coincidentally, you and I tried it earlier this year, but on like totally separate occasions. Yeah, it it totally was a coincidence that we did. And seemingly, Ryan, you and I had very different experiences with it. I think that's true. Well, uh, how about you give us your first take? A friend and I went to this bar in downtown Colorado Springs, and the bartender was just evangelizing this new liqueur. He's going, hey, you guys got to try this. You've never had anything like it. I'll pour you a free shot. And he pulls out this tall, skinny bottle of Tingala. And what stands out to me about it is the wasp on the bottle. Yes, it's a threatening logo. Uh-huh. Uh, right. And so my friend and I were like, hey, well, we're not going to say no to to free shots. And I think the experience of it is just hilarious. So at first, it's sort of this sweet, spicy cinnamon taste. But seemingly, in seconds, it's like you've been to the dentist and had your mouth shot full of Novocaine. I remember the numbness well. I'd gone to a cocktail bar in my neighborhood, Bar Max, Colfax, where I've tried all sorts of new things. Pawpaw liqueur, crab liqueur. Yes, crab. And this Tingala stuff. And 
you know, I'm glad I had the experience, but I, I wasn't eager to rush back to the numbing sensation. Yeah, I remember your social media post to that effect. Uh, to some degree, the divisiveness is sort of the point. They're trying to stand out. Here's Eric Tews. He's one of the owners of the company. I think it is a little bit polarizing, but I mean, there, there's a unique person who connects with Tangala. We know they're out there. We know there's a lot of them and really it won't be for everybody, but we do believe that, you know, there are cocktails that almost everyone would be comfortable having Tingala in. Eric started the company with his mom, Susan, and dad, Bob. Not everybody likes scotch. Some people love it. Some people hate it. Same thing with gin. Some people love it. Some people hate it. So we think there's a market at some level for something that we produce that we think gives a very different and unique mouthfeel. Or mouth unfeel, as it were. Uh, so, Dan, you visited the distillery where the twos make this numbing liqueur tingala. I did on bottling day. For years, the three of them, the, the twoses, did all the bottling and packaging themselves. And they still don't have their own facility. They rent space at local distilling in Golden. However, the brand has been slowly growing and they've reached enough critical mass that they now have local distilling workers helping out with the bottling like Sebastian Gerard. Uh, we fill it up. When they're done, we level them off and then we take it over to our capper over here. <clears throat> we press our corks into the bottles. We make sure that we don't have any uh, residue on the sides, clean them up. Then we're taking them to our cigar band station over here. The key ingredient, the tingler in Tingala, is something Bob Tews learned about from a TV show. He was in a Bourdain episode in the Amazon basin and he talked about the flower and I was like, I've never heard of this flower. He's talking about Anthony Bourdain, the now deceased chef and traveling food journalist. Bourdain raved about it and said it was a very unique experience. Uh, the, As the part of alcohol or? No, it was actually in a, it's in a soup that's, it's called takaka. It's a shrimp and uh, yucca soup that is part of the Amazon basin in Manaus and some of the other cities. He tried it and he was like, oh, my mouth is tingling. And I was like, I've never heard of this flower. I have no idea what this is. So I started to research Amazon flowers and, and found a little bit about what the flower was, where it came from, the history of it, started to grow it. We sampled with some things and then Eric uh, and I sort of like dialed in the recipe for what we thought would be a product that could maybe have uh, some appeal to the palate of people who drink. How long did you work on that first recipe? Oh, a long time. Um, my dad was the first one to kind of put the, the flowers into alcohol and really got kind of the concept idea. Like the first one that you know of, like in the world as far as we knew okay. <laughs> at the time um but then to kind of refine that recipe and get something that was palatable appropriate for the market that had kind of the flavor profile we were looking for that did take a long time we experimented with i remember one my dad did with cardamom and then i thought of the cinnamon piece and we just kind of went back and forth until until we came on on the final recipe i have no idea what goes into starting a uh, specialty liquor business. What do you do then? You you have a bottle and you're thinking, yeah, yeah, this could be a thing that I could sell. Like, what do you do then? Who do you go to? No, that's a great question. We knew that we weren't distillers by trade and that we weren't necessarily interested in starting a full licensed spirits facility. 
but we did want to find a partner that we could work with who supported our vision. So we started reaching out to local distilleries to see if somebody could make it for us. Is this something where there's a romantic excursion involved where you go to the fields and you're, you're dancing among the flowers to figure it out? Or is it the sort of thing that's a little more bootstrapped? You, you ordered up the flowers, you grew them here. Uh, we, <laughs> the initial batches of the flowers I grew because I'm a gardener. We would love to paint a beautiful picture of me in a uh, village on the Amazon River making Tingala, but it isn't quite that way. It's a little more real. Have you guys had the chance to go to the Amazon yet? Uh, no, COVID sort of like put the kibosh on travel. We were talking about it about three, four years ago. Oh yeah, we should go, we should go. And then COVID hit and everything shut down. So we haven't, haven't gotten there yet. Well, Dan Boyce, the Two's family dropped off a sample of these flowers. I have them here with me in the studio. They are known as buzz buttons, sometimes called Szechuan buttons. And they are a gorgeous yellow. They almost look like they're dotted with yellow pollen, little bulbs of yellow pollen. I'm going to give them a smell first. Hmm. Okay, maybe a little fresh and astringent. And should I just taste one? Let's see. Well, nothing's quite happening yet, but I only really just licked the <laughs> licked the bud here. You know, Dan, given that it had been a while since either of us tasted Tingala, you and I met the twos at a bar that carries it, the Denver Press Club downtown. Bob, I don't imagine buzz buttons are growing in people's Colorado gardens. Where, where do you get them? Actually, they are growing in Colorado gardens. Oh. It is a flower that has been around for a number of years as an ornamental. Hmm. About 400 years ago, the Portuguese took it from the Amazon River Basin, took it to West Africa, East Africa. In Madagascar, the national dish is called Romazava, and they use the flower the same way we would use cabbage. And you get that same effect of the flower. Numbing cabbage. Mm. Wow. Okay. Mm. As if cabbage needed anything <laughs> to make the experience. Sometimes maybe cabbage could use more, a, okay. a little bit of a tingle, you know? <laughs> we could replace kale with tingala flowers. <laughs> and how does be? it come to you in Golden, Colorado? <laughs> it's grown for us by a grower in Southern California, and it is shipped to us via UPS. I understand it. it's also called the toothache plant because it's, it helps with toothaches in the way that anything that numbs would. As many indigenous cultures know, there are properties with any plant that maybe go just beyond as a nutritional or as a food supply. There are medicinal effects from the plant. The numbing does work as that. And the Portuguese also took it to Goa, India, where it's an Ayurvedic medicine that's used in that. It also was uh, looked at very carefully as an antimicrobial or an anti-worm or, or intestinal problem. The bar here at the press club stocks Tingala, and uh, this is a place with a lot of skeptical people. So I'm going to start with my skepticism, which is, have you built a business on a novelty that people won't return to? But we definitely don't want to think it's a novelty. We made it strong, so it's easy to mix in cocktails, so it's versatile, um, and we're certainly listening to the feedback that we receive. Partially, that divisiveness with the original Tingala might have led you toward this new variety that you have just released. Tell us a little bit about how this Tingala Gold 
variety is different. Sure, you bet. So we originally targeted, you know, high-end, classy bartenders. We wanted mixed. We wanted mixologists. That's how we first wanted to approach the market. But in listening, even our bartenders were telling us it's strong, hmm. it's fun, you know, people like it, but it is challenging, even for bartenders. So listening to that feedback, we sort of looked at a different approach to the market where we could have something a little sweeter, a little shootable. Shootable. Um, <laughs> okay, so you could do shots of this. Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> um, and that's more fun for bartenders, too. They're looking for a way to, you know, impress their customers, you know, bring people in, show them something new. That's kind of our gateway tingala for a lot of people. And then as people get more into it, they might get more interested in, you know, the stronger version, interested in cocktails. I'd love to try this, well, the more accessible version. I guess I'm not that classy, Dan, like those bartenders <laughs> that we're going for. And then maybe something in a cocktail. I think are, you and I are both whiskey drinkers, aren't we? That is true. So I just want to make it clear, yeah. Ryan, you are trying to get away from trying the original Tingala again. I don't need to try the original again. <laughs> if I'm gonna get if I'm gonna get numb, it's gonna be on something new. Let's get numb. Dan, what do you say we do straight gold before the cocktail just to give it a try? I think it's the only way to fly, man. Ooh, it's very cinnamon forward. It is smoother. Then I remember the original being. What do you? The numbing's coming, though. <laughs> the numbing is coming. <laughs> what did that take? Six, seven, seven eight seconds? Yeah, uh, yeah. I do think. I think you're right that there's. Oh yeah, it just ramps up though, doesn't it? <laughs> we like to think it's a little more approachable. Is it? It's been certainly sweeter. It's a little. Sweeter, it's certainly yes. sweeter. Sorry, I'm trying to remember how to continue speaking with my mouth in this <laughs> new condition. Huh? It's funny. It's reading as heat to me now. You, yeah. Interesting. I've yeah. never heard that before. I wonder if it's the combination of cinnamon, which maybe I associate with like Mexican hot chocolate. And it's also a hot day. It's also a hot day out. Well, I'm fascinated to try this in a cocktail. And it just so happens that Susan thought to propose a Boulevardier, which has Campari and whiskey. It's a Negroni with whiskey. Susan, why don't you tell us about part of what you hope to achieve with Tingala is actually to help people taste other flavors more clearly. Isn't that right? That's right. Tingala is fun to drink. People enjoy the tingling sensation. But the aspect that we're uh, trying to convey to people is that it actually enhances other flavors. So when you use it in a cocktail, it brings out the flavors of the other ingredients and you enjoy the cocktail even more. I'll see what it does to the Boulevardier. All right, let's try it then. You know what? The Campari, which is an herbal, rooty flavor, is actually enhanced. I think it pops more than I'm used to. And it's interesting then, the numbing does not numb my taste buds, my ability to receive flavor. You might almost think of it as, to some degree, like an extreme palate cleanser. Those other flavors, like Ryan, like you said, it kind of really cuts through and hits you in a different way. It stimulates your taste buds. And so the business is growing. Yes. Where do you see it headed? I don't know. We, we've talked about that. I'm not really sure 
Uh, I'm retired, so we hope to grow the business as much as we can. We started in Colorado. Initially, we were distributing in the front range only. In the last year, we've expanded statewide, and now we've moved into Wisconsin, New York, and California, and also Nevada and Utah. So, you know, we're, we're growing uh, by leaps and bounds in our own small little way, and we hope to go national at some point. It's not easy to sell liquor from state to state because every state's a little different, right, Eric? It absolutely is. Um, That's why a lot of people work with distributors who are experts at getting licensed in different states, at getting your product to these states, and all the reporting requirements that a brand has to do. How is it having a family business? Do you get at each other's throats sometimes? Try to think about what it would be like to work with my mother. Love working with my parents, uh, but yeah, there's certainly points in any family business where, you know, you're going to have that, you know, parent-child dynamic still, uh-huh. and, and not a bad thing. You know, I'm learning a lot from my parents, and I hope that they're learning a little from me as well in, in my perspectives. Oh, Dad, what is something you've learned from your son in this? Well, he was actually very uh, instrumental in us getting started. We had the concept, we had the idea, we made some prototypes, and he refined the formula that I came up with and then took it to uh, a contract distillery because you have to be licensed as a distillery to produce a product. Ten years ago, Bob, did you, would you ever imagine that you'd be running a, a family spirit business? <laughs> Never in a thousand years. I came out of the news business, so uh, I joke we, we went from news to booze. Oh, th- those are often interconnected. Bob. <laughs> yeah, we are. We are at a bar in a press club. <laughs> Do you remember your first numbing experience? Oh. Sounds like such such a personal question. <laughs> oh. Do we do we go there? Uh, <laughs> um, well, the actually the uh, the initial run of the flowers, we made jello shots to take to a party and everybody was like, this is fabulous, you gotta do this. And we were like, well, I guess we do, you know? And that's where Eric took the formula to the distillery and we got approval. Tingala started as jello shots. Tingala started as a jello <laughs> shot, indeed. You know, most things that start with jello shots don't end this well, Dan. <laughs> it's, it's a been, rare win. It's a rare win. Lovely to meet you. Thanks for letting us taste. Oh, it was our pleasure. Of course, thank you for having us. Thank you. We tasted the tingling liqueur Tingala, made in Colorado. Susan, Bob, and Eric Tews own the brand. There are photos at CPR.org as Dan Boyce and I belly up to the bar at the Denver Press Club. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. These are the sounds of summer. So are these. Top classical artists make Colorado home every summer. Can't attend the hundreds of thrilling concerts yourself? No worries, we'll take you there. CPR Summerfest, sponsored by First Western Trust. Ask your smart speaker to play CPR Classical. She describes herself as the Susan Lucci of the Colorado Book Awards, nominated eight times but never won. 
We'll know more. Sandra Dallas picked up her first CBA this year for a novel set in the time of the Spanish flu. Dallas spoke with our producer Rachel Estabrook before the big moment in June. This book that we're talking about is called Little Souls. How did you get the idea for this book? I was reading a book about the 1918 flu epidemic, and I read that people were so frightened of the flu that when someone died in their house, they would take the body outside and leave it for the death wagons to pick up. And I thought, that would make a great murder mystery. You could hide a body that way. Oh, my goodness. And so from there, I went and and tried to find a plot. Right, because this book is, in a way, a murder mystery. And the murder mystery has a lot of twists and turns about who did it. Did you know how it was going to turn out when you started? Or did you decide as you went along who was going to be the one holding the murder weapon? I knew the ending when I started the book. I didn't know how I was going to get there. And so the twists and turns sort of came as I went along. And as you said, it is a murder mystery, but it's also a story of compassion, of love between two sisters. And uh, it's more, I think, a general story than it is a a mystery. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely want to talk about love. It's also a book about perseverance and finding love and light in unexpected places. Was that a message you felt like we needed in the third year of a pandemic? I wrote the book actually long before the pandemic. Uh I wrote it about, I don't know, maybe 10 or 12 years ago. I sent it off to my agent, and the response was, who cares about the 1918 flu epidemic? (laughs) And then about six months into the COVID epidemic, my agent called and said, remember that manuscript? And so I pulled it out and did some rewriting and sent it off and turned out to be very timely. That's so interesting that you wrote the book before it was even accepted. That seems like an unusual process for a writer. I don't know if it is or not. I'm not comfortable selling a book on an idea because I'm not confident enough that I'll be able to write something that's publishable. So I would much prefer to complete the book. And then if the publisher likes it, then I'll sell it. Um, I do write books that don't make it that far. One of them was Little Souls, but eventually it did get published. Hmm. So the love story that you talked about, I understand this love between the sisters, which continues in the book even after one of them dies, that um, this draws from your own life in a way. Could you tell me about your relationship with your sisters and how their stories made it into this book? I had an older sister who died of polio when she was 13 years old. Hmm. That was our family tragedy. It affected our family in many ways and for all of our lives. I still remember the anguish my mother went through. I remember the sadness that came to all of us. And I still think of her. I think of her as she was four years older. And I think of her now as being four years older. Hmm. And I think I drew a, a lot on that tragedy in our lives. Polio then was very much... Like the 1980 flu epidemic, people were so frightened of it. Swimming pools were closed. Summer camps were closed. It affected particularly children, which was tragic. Hmm. 
Hmm. So, right. Some people will draw a comparison between COVID and the flu, but you're saying there's also a comparison between polio. And I think so. Flu. Not as direct a comparison as COVID, but, but certainly one to any uh, epidemic. Wow. So as you still think about your sister today as if she was living four years older than you, did writing this book, how did that fit in to your modern-day relationship with her? The influence she had on the book was not conscious. I think I just drew on some. I didn't actually think about her death when I was writing the book. But I think my feelings were subconscious, and I think they came out. Huh. So the book's main character is named Ludie. She starts out as this very naive young woman. She's hardworking and she loves her family, but she's sort of blind to a lot of the hard parts of life. And she develops a lot through the book as she's exposed to the challenges of the time, the flu, but also World War I. What interested you about that kind of a journey for someone? I wanted her to grow up during that period, and anybody would. The book starts out as Ludie comes home having seen a flu victim dead on the street, and she finds her sister standing over a man who's dead, and the sister has a knife in her hand. At that point, Ludie really does start to grow up. She begins to realize that, you know, a man is dead because of what someone in her family has done. Then she's engaged to a um, a young man who goes off to war. The fear of the war, the tragedy that that is, uh, figures into her life. So she couldn't help but grow up. And the man that her sister is standing over is different than the flu victim in the street, just to be clear. Those are two different people. So she sees death twice in one day, basically. She does. And then is also dealing with the what her fiancé is going through Yes, with the war. The book is not all sad. Ludie falls in love. She has a wonderful time with her fiancé. Much of the book is about Denver, about the things they do in Denver. They go to a movie. They see a Tarzan movie uh, in one of the theaters on Curtis Street, which was then Denver's Great White Way because of all the light bulbs and the, the movie houses. She and her sister have a lot of fun together. So the book is, it's a lot about love, about relationships, as much as a mystery. I was curious about those Denver landmarks. You write about several of them, including the zoo near City Park and um, the streetcar routes. Are all of those historically accurate for the time? Well, I hope they are. I started out writing nonfiction <laughs> books uh, about architecture, and I have one on Denver, and I wrote a lot about uh, those things in Denver. And, of course, I remember the Colfax trolley. Certainly, I know City Park. I grew up near there and remember some of the things in the book. Hmm. You write about this specific mansion on Grant Street. Is that a house that's still standing? It's not a specific house, but I remember Grant Street when all the mansions were there. I took music lessons in one of them, and I used to walk up the street, oh, probably five at night when it was dark and in the winter, and I was maybe 10 years old, and I was fascinated with those mansions. I was wondering, because I was kind of picturing you outside this house still standing, sort of taking notes on it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
So you've written 33 books now. Is there something quintessentially about Colorado or Denver that you try to capture in your books? No, but I want it to be accurate. I want people to get a sense of what the West is. And I, I do, in most of my books, have descriptions of the plains. I have set several books in eastern Colorado and write about that and go out there and sort of just soak up the atmosphere. I think that's important to get. I should set my books in France so that I could go there, but I don't. <laughs> I set them in Kansas and Colorado. And you actually worked in the same department store that was a real, obviously a real-life department store as your character in this book, Ludi, doing the same type of work. I did. I was a um, publicist. My first job out of college at Newsetters, which was a women's specialty store in Denver, a very elegant store. I remember I made $50 a week, and I would walk to work to save bus fare. It was pretty tight, and I was called in by my boss to find out why I had not given to United Fund. Hmm. And so I used that story for Ludi, who works in the same department and is pressured to give to the war bond drive. Hmm. And Newsteaders, was that right on 16th Street? Newsteaders is 16th and Stout. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the building is still there. I think it's now condos. You know, I've been thinking a lot lately about this unique human ability to to teach each other things through stories. And so I'm curious as someone who's written such a prolific collection of books, is there something you hope to teach people through your writing, some knowledge or feeling you like to pass on? Or is it more about writing to entertain people? I don't write message books. I don't sit down to influence people in a certain way. But I hope that when people finish my books, they will feel that they've learned something about the flu or about Denver or about whatever the setting is that I'm writing about and the time period. That's what I like when I read books. I like to finish them and, and know I've learned something new. That is Sandra Dallas, at last a winner of the Colorado Book Award for her historical novel, Little Souls. She spoke with my colleague Rachel Estabrook in June. And that is Colorado Matters today with thanks to these winners. Tyler Bender, Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Rachel Estabrook, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Tom Hess, Michael Hughes, Chris Ketchum, Pedro Lumbraño, Shane Rumsey, Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. And I'm Ryan Warner, with special thanks to Andrew Viegas. You're with CPR News and KRCC.